there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in a career on Wall Street, then you're definitely going to want to stay tuned because my next guest is the founder of one of the largest and most entertaining online communities focused on careers in finance. But before I introduce you to Patrick Curtis, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays to give you an exclusive look inside the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Patrick Curtis, the founder, CEO, and chief monkey of the Wall Street Oasis, also known as WSO, one of the largest and most entertaining online communities focused on careers in finance with over 25 million visits a year and 2 million posts to date. I'm actually guessing it's way above that. WallStreetOasis.com was initially launched in May 2006 as iBankingOasis.com. And back then it was a forum-based site only for investment bankers and prospective monkeys. Don't worry, we're going to get into what a monkey is. As growth accelerated and more professionals from other industries joined from private equity, hedge funds, S&T equity research, asset management, consulting, and on and on, Patrick decided to make them feel more welcome and change the name to WallStreetOasis.com. You can also check out Wall Street Oasis. YouTube channel and WSO's podcast, as well as the Moving Up podcast with Alex Grodnick. You may remember Alex, who I interviewed in T4C episode 230, 230, that is. So you can check it out if you haven't already. Patrick is also the chief learning officer of the IBP Institute, which are the providers of the investment banking professional credential. By the way, if you want to learn more about Wall Street Oasis and how Patrick himself moved from Wall Street to becoming chief monkey and CEO, check out the show notes for this episode to see if his main Time for Coffee interview has already dropped. Patrick, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Ready to go, for sure. Fantastic. So let's dive into our 10 espresso shots. The first one being what? entry-level jobs are available to young people who want to break into the world of finance? So I think it's really important before we dive into the different entry-level roles is to say, you know, finance is a huge umbrella term. So if we break that down, you have a lot of different sub-industries underneath that big umbrella term of finance. So there's corporate finance, where you can think of like the Fortune 500 companies, they often have something called an FLDP program that's very uh, prestigious and difficult to get into. FLDP stands for Finance Leadership Development Programs. And typically, these are like a few years right out of school, you're given almost like a rotation through a lot of different parts of the corporation, which is actually a great 
place to start out because you get a little bit of taste of everything to see what you like. Where Wall Street Oasis really focused on initially was, like you said, investment banking. And that is available to people right out of school. It is incredibly competitive to get into because typically their investment banks are only recruiting at a subset of 20 to 40 schools. It used to be even less. They're actually branching out now, but it's very tough to break in. You need to have top grades, typically at 3.5 or higher, be at one of the top schools. And if you're not, then you need to network incredibly <laughs> aggressively to uh, get yourself on the radar to land that first round interview. Okay. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that overview. So for our young listeners who think they may want to get into that really broad field of finance, what would the titles be that they should be looking for when they go to the Wall Street Oasis website, of course, to see mm -hmm. what jobs are available or whether they use LinkedIn or Indeed or any of these other sites? Sure. So if it's investment banking, you'd be an investment banking analyst. If it's in a corporate finance division, it could be called a financial analyst. Typically, if it's in equity research, it would be equity research associate. Associate's actually the junior one there. It's kind of a reverse. And then, yeah, that's typically you know anything from investment analyst to research analyst, research associate, if you're going to be more on kind of the investment side of things where you're looking at potential investments. So I think it's important to distinguish between what's called often called the buy side or the sell side. You can think of the sell side as you're working at an investment bank and you're selling your services to clients. So clients hire the investment bank, you're working on advising other clients. So people, you're selling your advice. So think that as the sell side. Buy side, think of you're actually buying, you're making decisions, the research and whatnot to actually buy, buy companies directly. So not a very simplistic way to think about it. But when somebody says, I work on the buy side or the sell side, you can think of sell side as more like advising, buy side more as like actually making the investments, like actually doing, putting the money to work. Okay. I should probably say if it isn't already self-evident, mm -hmm. I am not somebody who really gets all these different no, jobs on Wall Street. So <laughs> it's thank you. I definitely need you to hold my hand through this. It's actually good because if anything I'm saying is confusing, ask for clarification. Will do. I promise you I will. What about a useful skill or skills that you look for, Patrick? I should say, maybe not even you, since the people that you're hiring right now would be coming to Wall Street Oasis, which is a business in itself. But what are the skills then that most of these employers in finance are really looking for that are sort of the foundational skills that you have, that you yeah. must have if you want to break in? So I think it's always important on your resume or CV to demonstrate an actual interest in finance. So one of the ways you can do this, especially if you're not a finance major, is actually have financial modeling training, self-study on your resume. So specifically, that includes like three statement modeling, discounted cash flow analysis. So you have all the right buzzwords on there. And you can look up financial modeling training, financial modeling courses, Google, and just try to see where you can kind of get that studying. But basically, it's a great way on your resume to show that you have some motivation, self-motivation to actually get the skills needed. If you're comfortable in Excel, if you're comfortable working with numbers, if you're comfortable kind of manipulating data tables and spreadsheets, it's something that you're going to be doing a lot in finance, especially at the entry level. And then also, I'd say PowerPoint is incredibly important, like being able to actually put a presentation together that looks good. And you'd be surprised how strict it is, that, especially in investment banking, if you walk in and you're training and you start using your mouse when you're in Excel, they'll rip the mouse out of your keyboard and throw it across the room. <laughs> because really? using your mouse is about, initially, it'll be faster for you, but it'll actually make you three times, four times slower if you keep using your mouse when you're 
in Excel, for example, or even in PowerPoint oftentimes. If you learn how to actually use the keyboard in these programs that you're going to be living in for, say, 60 to 80 to 100 hours a week if you're working in investment banking, then you actually become much more efficient and much faster. So they get very, the associates and analysts bringing on the new analysts really make it a big deal. A lot of banks do from the beginning. So you don't develop bad habits. What about, and this is less so for people who are at the 20 to 40 schools that the Mm -hmm. finance world comes to recruit at, and more so for the ones that you would call the non-target schools. Yep. For those students, you mentioned the importance of networking. How can they do that networking mm-hmm. while I they're think, at school? Yeah, I think it's critical that they do it while they're in school because if they wait till they're almost graduating, they've already missed the boat by several years. Nowadays, people are getting recruited for summer analysts and internship positions, if we're talking about investment banking, in their sophomore, junior year. So it's kind of one of those things where it's tough to know what you don't know. And if you're not on Wall Street Oasis or you're not on other similar forums, like figuring out when the recruiting cycles are happening, you may wake up junior year, senior year, say, yeah, I'm interested in this investment banking thing. And by that point, it's incredibly difficult. Whereas if you're a freshman or sophomore and you start taking an interest, you can start building out that network early on. So how do you do that? So you can go onto LinkedIn, you look at alumni, anyone in finance, and you shouldn't be coming from where you are as a college student. You shouldn't obviously hold your head up too high and think, oh, this person's not investment banking. I'm not going to talk to them. Talk to everybody. You get better at talking to people at just informational interviews, coffee chats, and try to just learn more about all different finance industries if it interests you. Investment banking is kind of held up in this high regard on Wall Street races specifically because that's kind of our roots. But it's really a difficult <laughs> first couple of years out of school. It's not like this holy grail where people go there and say, oh, I'm going to be in investment banking for my life. The majority of people actually try to get out very fast. Because Uh, it is just that hard. It's incredibly grueling. And that's not all firms, but for a large majority of the firms, it is seen as a a great kind of almost paying your dues. And when you get there, it opens up a lot of what they call exit opportunities. So you're given, if you break into that job and you you survive the two years, a lot of firms are going to be kind of coming after you to either work on the buy side in private equity, hedge funds, and you have a lot of options coming out of that. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's still held in such high regard, but it's not the end of the world if you get into a great FLDP program or you get into, let's say, go to management consulting or you do any sort of thing like that. I think the problem is people have kind of been holding up on this pedestal for so long that it's kind of things have skewed too far in that direction. Patrick, I'm now going to illustrate yet again how this industry is so foreign to me, and that is... I should have asked you in that very first question about the entry-level jobs, the very good point that you just made, that if you're just waking up in September of your senior year and saying, ooh, I'd like to go into the world of finance, that's too late, you need to be thinking about this beginning your freshman year to line up internships, right? Correct. Internships are critical, especially in investment banking. You can still get a junior year internship if, say, sophomore summer you're ready kind of coming into that junior year. But for investment banking, it's almost like it's happening now before the summer. of. So it's almost a year before your internship, you're getting recruited for that internship. And can our listeners find postings for internships on Wall Street Oasis? 
typically no, they're not really advertised. They typically are done through on-campus recruiting. So that's why it's so important to be in those 20 to 40 schools. Now to say, well, how do you actually get in if you're not at the right school and there's no on-campus recruiting? Well, that's where the networking comes in. And so if you're early enough, say sophomore year, and you've been talking to a few investment bankers and let them know, hey, I go to, let me think, go to University of Alabama and they just don't have a very strong presence but a University of Texas and you want to get up to New York, you better be talking to investment bankers in New York or whomever. So you want to work at a hedge fund and you're talking to people in, in the hedge fund space before kind of that cycle starts. You can think of the larger banks and the larger companies and finance firms as having a more structured process that kind of tends to go earlier. And you can think of the smaller firms, say anywhere from one man shop all the way up to like the 20 or 30 people shops. Those tend to be a little bit later. And so they're a little less structured because they just typically don't have HR departments. So there still are opportunities. It's not as if you missed that window. Everything is gone. It's just it becomes much more ad hoc and much more trying to find those opening seats is very tough. Okay. And as you said, use your alumni network for sure. And Mm -hmm. in terms of the... Sorry, in terms of the alumni network, well, I go to this school and there are no alumni on Wall Street. There's nobody actually has made it. So in that case, use any sort of similarity. So people always like look at their resume and, and I always tell them the interest section is incredibly important. That last line on your resume that says, what are you actually interested in outside of work? That is so critical and people underestimate that because oftentimes when you go sit down and interview, people haven't even looked at your resume because they're so so busy. So they just look down to the bottom and see what they can start a conversation about. It's the same thing when you're reaching out on LinkedIn or if you can find any sort of commonality with that person. We're from this town or this state or I enjoy squash or I enjoy soccer or I enjoy whatever it may be. If you can pick up on anything from that person's interest and make that connection, it gives you a much better shot at actually getting a response and getting on the phone with them or even better meeting up for coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Now, the other thing that you mentioned about the cycles of hiring, when Do the cycles start for the really big firms? And then by what point do you think it has stopped for the smaller? Yes. So I think if you're talking about, like, say, a junior summer internship, so the internship right after your junior year, they're going to be getting recruited in the summer right before their junior year, like even before they get on campus, up through the fall for most larger firms. I'd say then from there, it's going to be basically up until the summer starts, there'll still be some kind of smaller firms kind of trickling in and taking people on in some even last minute, like maybe a really small firm that's like, oh, yeah, we want an intern last second, they'll bring somebody on. (laughs) So it's not to say that if you don't have anything leading into the summer doesn't mean you should give up, you should just keep going, keep hustling, keep networking and let people know that, hey, I'll work for free or I'll work for very little. I mean, people say it's funny, because people are like, oh, you shouldn't work for free. I'm like, you're actually usually causing the company more work than what you're giving them in terms of having to train you or show you what's going on. Like you're gaining knowledge by sitting there and even being able to shadow somebody. So even if you could shadow somebody, it's just incredibly valuable and just ask questions and try to stay out of the way. If you can do that, if you can just live cheaply somehow in a major city, to be in like a New York is just a huge advantage because then your networking efforts are going to be so much more fruitful. You can say, I'm actually in town be great to meet. I'm free here, here, and here, and here, you know, anytime I work for you. And versus I'm coming up into the city for this one day. And I know it's tough because rent is really expensive and all that stuff. But you'd be surprised people like entry level, they'll have like three or four roommates in like a three bedroom just to make it affordable. If you're willing to kind of sleep on couches, and I've had guests on my podcast that were sleeping on couches, doing trips to New York all the time just for this exact purpose. And it works. So fantastic. So You alluded to the bottom line of a person's resume as being Mm -hmm. 
really important. And I think it ties in perfectly with the next espresso shot, which is about life experiences. What kind of life experiences, Patrick, do you think are most useful for someone starting out in this field? And I should let our listeners know that you played varsity squash all four years that you were at Williams. You also were JV soccer your freshman year. You were a teaching assistant, math of finance, which I've never even heard of. That was in undergrad and In grad school at Wharton, where you got your MBA, you were co-president of the poker club, which is so cool. (laughs) So yeah, incredibly important that you're a poker player to uh, get into it. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, you know what the funny part is, I joke about that, but actually traders are often poker players because poker has a lot of parallels to trading in terms of having imperfect information and actually making the right reads in terms of how much to bet and bankroll and all that stuff. But I won't get into the technicalities of poker. But yeah, I think anything in terms of life experience, anything where you're demonstrating an ability to balance a large workload and multiple activities. So sports can be a good example, or let's say you're co-president of whatever XYZ club and you just show any sort of passion for, and it doesn't have to be finance. It could be president of the basket weaving club, but showing some initiative and some leadership is typically what they like to look for because it tends to be people who are more comfortable working in teams, working in a group. And those are important qualities for people coming into this career. I say like in any career, but yeah, I think anything where you're just balancing a heavy workload and multiple kind of extracurricular activities is a life experience that is useful. Also, if you struggle a little bit. So I think it's if you're able to keep a relatively high GPA, also work while you're going through school, I think you should highlight that on your resume. Because it says if you've paid your way through your own schooling and you've kept a high GPA and you've done other things, it tends to send a very positive impression about this person has their head on straight. They're working plus they're at school, plus they're doing all this other stuff. I think it's a pretty good signal to send. Yeah. Chances are your time management is good. You're focused. Yeah. What about someone's major? Is it a deciding factor to get into finance. In other words, if they haven't studied, you know, in your case it was economics, if they haven't studied finance, business, mm-hmm. what are, in your opinion, are the most important majors to have? I think the easiest ones to, to break in is just finance or economics. However, I will say you can think of this as almost like a sliding scale. So let's say, let me give you an example. If I'm at Harvard and I'm a history major, yet I have like some financial modeling training and some other finance stuff, they're not even going to blank history major applying for investment banking. They'll still, that person may still get an interview. Whereas if I'm at XYZ non-target and I'm a history major and then I don't have that financial modeling training or any other, it's going to be almost impossible, right? So like I would say that's what I mean by sliding skill. If you're at a super high-end target, you have a little bit more leeway in terms of not majoring in something relevant. Whereas if you go to a semi-target or non-target, you really need to be demonstrating that this is really what you want to do because it's going to be that much harder to land that. Okay. Just in terms of odds, just in terms of actual, you think of it logically in terms of like how hard it is, whether they're going to go out of their way. You think of it as a way of like the analyst putting their neck out for you. Are they going to push you to get that first round interview, whether it's an analyst or associate that you met and, and spoke with when you come from a school that nobody knows and you are like a, I don't know, a political science major and you have very little finance on your resume, it's, it's going to be a long shot. Yeah, it's a good thing I didn't apply because I was a poli-sci major. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so what about a grad school degree? And this is 
less so for those entry-level positions, more so for people who really want to make it to the top to be managing directors or others in the C-suite. I think it's becoming less important nowadays. There's a lot of, in investment banking specifically, there's a lot of what they call analyst to associate promotes now, where people are going straight through to be promoted. That being said, the MBA is a great way to reset for people. Let's say they were a political science major and they did in marketing, but they were quickly promoted and did really well. But they said, you know, this finance thing actually really interests me. And they can go, if they can break into a top business school, say like the top seven business schools, they actually have a really good shot at breaking into investment banking coming out of one of those programs. So it's a good, the MBA is a great place to pivot to a different career or semi-related career. There is also a newer degree called the MSF, Masters in Finance, that is a little bit harder. And I would say you have to be careful because it can help get people into investment banking. But typically, the people that go get an MSF and do get there are the ones that are, number one, not international they don't need visas. And number two, they already know what they want before they go in because it's a shorter program. It's only like a one-year program. So they've already been networking and getting ready before they go into the MSF because they have like such a short window before recruiting starts. And is that true for the other verticals within the world of finance outside of investment banking? It is. You can think of investment banking as one of the more difficult ones. For private equity, it's not. If you don't have pre-MBA experience in private equity and you're trying to get in after, it's almost impossible just because of the fact that the kids with private equity experience are all going after limited seats. So it's going to be very rare to get a look from a reputable fund post-MBA if you don't have that pre-MBA experience. So private equity, I'd say yes. Hedge funds is a little more ad hoc because they're, they're smaller and it's more splintered. Asset management is, I think there's typically, you know, if you're talking like a fidelity you could definitely pivot into that as well. So if you're just showing an interest in the markets and trading and all that, it's something you absolutely can pivot into. It's just more about kind of building the story. I think ideally leading up to your MBA and then through your MBA, doing the internship and then ideally getting a, getting a return offer. Gotcha. So Patrick, what is the best part for you of being in this profession? I think if you're talking finance in general, I think it's the the challenges every day, you develop skills that are incredibly useful for business in the long term. So that means, so for example, when I was two years in investment banking, by the time I left that job, it was almost like you could play an instrument in Excel. You didn't use the mouse. <laughs> and people would look at you like you were a wizard because you didn't touch the mouse and do all this stuff. And you're incredibly fast in terms of doing analytics and running analyses, building financial models, all of that stuff. So I think the best part is just the learning curve there and being able to analyze businesses. Yeah, that's probably it in terms of just making yourself useful. Okay. And what about your current job as the CEO, founder, and chief monkey of Wall Street Oasis? What is the part for you that sucks the most? I would say for me, it's just being in my inbox for so many hours every day. Oh, yeah. I think that's hardest. It's either that or just having a fully remote team is difficult in terms of trying to know when people are on keeping everyone's schedule. Somewhat in my head, I mean, we have ways in terms of people when they need time off, but when people are like, oh, I'm going to be gone this Friday or this random Monday, and then you know that Monday comes and you don't remember. Because <laughs> if you're working with 20 people, it's, it starts getting to be too much. And I think we're at that junction for us where it's becoming harder to kind of just manage it with almost like a small team of five where it's, it's really started to grow. I'd say that's probably the hardest part. I bet. So Patrick, what is the best career advice you've ever gotten? 
I'd say to ask a lot of dumb questions early and often, but then to not ask the same question twice. So when you're first starting out, you're given a lot of leeway, you're expected to ask a lot of dumb questions. I think it's important that you ask those questions, make sure first you Google it to make sure you can't Google the answer. (laughs) But then also not just asking the questions, but try to do it in batch form. So for example, instead of let's say you're a new analyst, instead of going to your associate every 10, 20 minutes or every hour even, try to kind of keep a running list of questions you have maybe every three or four hours you, or a couple times a day you approach them to ask questions so that you're getting them answered in batches and taking good notes. I think that's, it's a very tactical career advice, but it's something a lot of people miss. That is fantastic advice. And frankly, I think that applies to so many different professions. Mm-hmm. When you're starting out, definitely ask lots of questions. And it's great to be tactical about it. Keep Mm -hmm. a list, keep a list, and then go, as Patrick said, a couple times a day, or if you don't have that many questions, a couple times a week and have a sit down, grab a coffee and go at it. For sure. Final two espresso shots. What movies, if any, and holy cow, are there a lot of them, or Netflix, Amazon, Hulu shows, or Mm -hmm. books, Patrick, do you think accurately depict your profession? Not many. I would say definitely not The Wolf of Wall Street. (laughs) Well, that's a relief. Uh, Yeah. However, I would say there is a book called Monkey Business, which is the reason why we have the theme of our site is monkeys. It's getting old now. I think it's back in the 90s or something or 2000 around there where it's it's a book about this guy who's in his analyst program and it's incredibly accurate in terms of what the life is like of an investment banking analyst. So, And it's highly entertaining and highly, highly humorous. So I, I highly recommend that book. And then in terms of movie, I think The Big Short was very entertaining and actually somewhat actually accurate in terms of not accurate in terms of the caricatures, but accurate in terms of how different trades are thought not and what happened back then. Great. We'll include those, uh, the book and the movie in our show notes. And final mm-hmm. espresso shot. Yep. What would Java junkies be surprised to learn about the world of finance? I think that they'd be surprised to learn that for the large majority of the time the analysts spend in the office, it is not glamorous. It is a lot of grinding in PowerPoint and Excel. It's a lot of turns for things that are other people would consider insane. Like for example, you could be up at three in the morning getting a call from your managing director telling you to fix the italics in a bullet point four on page 135 of a pitch book that probably no one will ever see. So that <laughs> I think people would be surprised to learn how incredibly detail-oriented and anal really the bankers can be about their presentation materials because of the stakes each one of those meetings can be really important. So even though oftentimes it's never actually looked at, the level of detail that is needed to succeed in that business is just crazy. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, listen, as a reminder to our listeners, if they want to learn more about Patrick and his wonderful site, which has so many resources on it, Wall Street Oasis. They should go to wallstreetoasis.com or check out show notes to listen to Patrick's main Time for Coffee interview. Patrick, thanks so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I feel like I probably could have talked to you for another several hours and still just have been scratching the surface of how much knowledge you have about this industry. That's been a fun ride. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 
24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.